0: This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to The Fierce and Lovely Podcast. On this podcast, I amplify the feminine voice and curate feminine glory so that you, my listener, find your own fierce and lovely story. It has become somewhat of a sacred journey for me to uncover the stories of women from around the world throughout time and present day. The more fierce and lovely women I explore, the more I fall in love with the one in whose image we reflect. My hope is that in this space, you embrace your own beautifully ordinary life as the majority story most of us are living. Welcome to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. I don't know what today holds for you, where you are in life, work, family, pain, and hope. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you leave encouraged. I'm committed to amplifying the voice of women who are living, loving, and leading out of various spaces. And I keep hearing from you, my listeners, that you are loving the guests that are on the show. I'd love to hear from you too, and you can leave a note for me on iTunes or follow me on Instagram now at fiercelovely. DM me and just share with me how some of these shows are impacting you. I love it. Today we're talking about a theology of food. Melissa DeArabian is most widely known for her Food Network show Ten Dollar Dinners, and is the author of the newly released Tasting Grace discovering the power of food to connect us to god one another and ourselves in a world that has a very distorted view of food her journey to find a sacred perspective is refreshing and challenging here's my conversation with melissa so Melissa, you've been in the food space for 10 years and you have a new book out that we're going to talk about and just cannot wait to pick your brain about your expertise around that space that you have just become an expert in. Can you tell us just real quick you live in San Diego, correct? And you've got how many girls?
1: Yeah, so we live uh, we actually
0: live on a small
1: island just outside of San Diego called Coronado. Um And I have four daughters. So they're all, they're ninth grade, eighth grade, seventh grade, seventh grade. So it's, it's a... It's a real <laughs> hormone fest over here at the Deorabian household.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. this I have two girls still mm-hmm. at home. My son is already gone. But this morning, my, after they left, my husband was like, oh, my gosh, the two of them together sometimes. Yeah. I can't. You, for you, it's doubled, which is just amazing. And they're all in that same age range. Yes. So close together, which is probably fun and beautiful and crazy making at times. It's
1: all of the above. Correct. Yes.
0: Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, I've I've just got so many thoughts rolling. I cannot wait to get into our conversation, but let's kick it off with you sharing a little bit about how you have seen the intersection of fierce and lovely in your own life.
1: Oh, wow. Um, uh, First of all, I love the intersection of fierce and lovely because um, I think that's what that's what life really is, right? Um, you know, there's, first of all, I'll say this, there's fierce wherever, if we look for it, we can find the fierce. And by fierce, you know, I'm referring to strength and and, and, and the grit and um, and the hardness of, of life and that we can show up and do hard things. And in hard things and showing up and um, and being open to that, Um, There's such beauty. So isn't there such beauty that can be found anywhere? And that really is, I think the loveliness. So, you know, we were just talking about parenting. Parenting is so hard, Um, and so sometimes we feel like we have to be, um, we have to show up for that and that is hard. And there's, um, but there's beauty in, in hard things. There's beauty in coming out the other side. And, um, even in, you know, and I talk about it in Tasting Grace, you know, one of the hardest things I've ever done was go through the spiritual winter of losing my mom to suicide and what that, that did. To me, and what that um, what that left me in for about ten years, and um, that was that was hard. Um, but you know, the only way out is through. Sometimes, and what's at the other side can be so lovely. There's so much beauty in that, and sometimes we're um, we don't get to see the beauty until we've had the hard. Um, and and I think that. Um, the coexistence of hard and beautiful is really, um, it's really everywhere. And I think that we can see that even in, um, you know, in my faith and in my relationship with, with God, that if I see really the depths of despair of my human nature to get it wrong, um, that's kind of the hard part right? And then the beauty is the depth of the grace that we're given. Um, and the result is gratitude for that grace. So I think this coexistence of hard and beautiful um, is really um, what life is all about, kind of at the macro big level and at the small level of you know me getting my kids out the door. Uh, to school today or whatever. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think it's kind of everywhere.
0: I love that. And it, just the both and of, of those two things. And if we embrace that as just a part of life, that they will always coexist. How would our perspective on day to day actually shift? Um, oh, there's richness in that response. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned tasting grace and, I would love to talk more about your new book. Can you just start off by telling us a little bit about your heart behind it and what you hope uh, that readers will walk away from it with? Yeah. Um,
1: well, Tasting Grace is, um is the book that nobody asked me to write. Nobody came to me and said, hey, can you write about this uh, particular topic and talk about how God is inviting us in uh, to get closer to him through food? Um, nobody nobody was saying that. Uh, <laughs> nobody except my soul. And and what um, the reason why I wrote Taste and Grace, sort of the genesis of Taste and Grace was um, this world in which we are simultaneously obsessed with food. And I'm, I'm part of that food space, right? We are obsessed as a society with food, but we are also very disconnected from food as a society. And so I started noticing this, um, uh, you know, this disconnect um, that I couldn't quite reconcile. I couldn't quite reconcile that there would be, you know, people who would say, oh, they're such foodies and they watch, you know, um, you know, TV uh, with food TV and and all of this and then yet they they weren't cooking a meal um, or I couldn't reconcile that we would as a society um, I would see people who would say oh I can't eat tomatoes because there's too much sugar in them but then they would drink this like bright blue sports drink with all these chemicals and it's impossibly sweet and but no calories and no sugar and whatever and they'd be doing that at the gym all in the name of health so I couldn't quite reconcile some of these messages you know that we've turned, hospitality into performance rather than what hospitality really was intended to be which is service and welcoming of the stranger so i couldn't quite reconcile some of these messages that were swirling around in in the food world and i mean that both as as a professional but also just as a um, as a mom and woman and and consumer and so that led me to um to Marinating in and brooding over the question, what does God have to say about food? And how does that change how, how I want to think about food and my relationship with food? And not just how I think about food going forward, but how, how did that alter the lens of food in my past and my food stories? Mm -hmm. So that's what led to three years of, um, of daily prayer, um, reading, um, marinating in, God's word, um, about that intersection. And that's, um, that's what led to me, uh, that that's what led me to writing Tasting Grace was it was the book that, that I needed. And, um, my hope for other people is that when they read it, that ultimately it changes the way the reader looks at food and, um, changes the way they eat literally even a bite of food that, each bite can bring us closer to God and to each other. And my hope is that the next bite of food that readers will have after reading Tasting Grace will do that, that they will see in that bite of food all these invitations and connections to um, live a deeper, richer life closer to our maker and closer to each other and closer to our earth. And I think that's perhaps a lofty goal for a book. But um, but I know that for me, having written the book, um, it, it changed the way I eat food and the way I think about food, even in just a simple bite of a granola bar. Um, that has been forever changed for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit more about what you write about god's view of food versus society's view of food and how you have come to understand those are so I mean you've kind of alluded to the way that we have a very distorted view of what we're putting into our bodies but talk a little bit more about how those two are so vastly different
1: well with um with society all you know there there're so many ways right and it's like it's like picking up the Christmas tree ornaments at the bottom of your, uh, you know, Christmas decoration box. It's impossible to pick up one of those hooks without all the hooks coming with it. So it's sort of this, um, I've, I've in a way, um, artificially divided the, the different topics by chapter in, in the book, but they really are all, um, so intimately connected. So it's hard to kind of just bring up one, but one, I'll give you a couple of examples, um, you know, we have in society we have um, a lot of guilt language around food. You know, we have—I'll uh, give you an example with the holidays. Um, you know, we'll say things like, in society, and I mean, like in media, and and even to each other, we will talk about, oh, well, no, we've had you know pumpkin pie Thanksgiving, so now I need to go to the gym and work off that pumpkin pie. I have to. I have to. Earn my calories rather than celebrating the fact that we had a piece of pumpkin pie with our Aunt Edna and got to connect with her for a couple of hours. And we don't get to see her that often. We are now sh- finding shame in having eaten. And now we need to go and make exercise, which by the way, is another great, wonderful gift from God that our bodies move and that we, um, that they're intended to move. We now, Ruin two things in, in one go. We ruined our pumpkin pie with Aunt Edna and we ruined the fact that our bodies get to move and that our bodies are made to be strong and, and we're, we're made to, um, to, to move our bodies to honor God. Now we ruin both of those things with this language of guilt that one is now the punishment for the other. And, and so, like that guilt language around food um, was nowhere to be found in the Bible. Um, that's from my from my looking. Um, if it's there, no one has pointed it out to me. I haven't seen it, and so this idea that we are um, that we're to feel guilty for enjoying food is completely man made. Now, um, I, I I will say this: um, obviously, we are not meant to uh, to indulge. to the the point of gluttony. So it's not that there are no limits to how much we are to enjoy food, but we forget God created a delicious food system for a reason. God could have created food that didn't taste good, and he didn't do that. God wanted us to love the food he created, or he wouldn't have created Juicy peaches and creamy avocados and, and sweet carrots. He wouldn't have done that. So if God created a system that, that included delight, what, what does that mean when we refuse the delight? We say, no, the tomatoes have too much sugar in it. I don't trust the tomato, but I do trust this blue drink. What does that say? to God and and as as a parent, which is the only sort of, not the only, but it's sort of the best sort of glimpse I have into maybe a little bit of how God feels about us. As a parent, how do I feel when my kids reject my, you know, homemade dinner and you know all these great ingredients and say, no, I just, you know, I just want a chicken nugget or whatever. Um and hey, listen. There's nothing wrong with a chicken nugget every now and again, but, um, but when my kids reject my best for them because they want the quick, fixed, fast hit of fat, salt and, and, and sugar or whatever, um, how does that sort of make me feel? Um, and I think about, I wonder how God feels when I freak out over sugar and a tomato and have a blue drink instead. And mm-hmm. so this kind of idea that we are not intended to delight in God and, and his gifts for us and, um, and his food for us um, is, is really a, a man-made twisting of that half truth, which is that, you know, that we're taking this beautiful truth, which is that, you know, yeah, we're supposed to delight and we're also supposed to have this limit of not being gluttonous. Um, but we, we, we co opt that and, and I believe it's Satan co opting that, that truth and wrapping it up in this lie and feeding it to us and saying, well, then you should feel guilty about, um, eating something uh, delicious and you should feel, um, guilty enough to then go and exercise and then earn your food. So I think that we have this world in food of, half truths that um that our society and that I think Satan is over on the side like clapping his hands saying yay I'm able to take these beautiful truths and tweak them and and exploit them and wrap them in lies that society will 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 take in you know hook line and sinker so we're in this world of all these slippery slopes and half truths and I just wanted to break through that and get to the source and sort of say, yes, but what is God saying? How can I navigate these slippery slopes um, and get to really what, what, what is the gift that God is giving us? And so um, I think that ultimately I think that tasting grace is about switching our posturing from taking our food and feeling guilty about it to receiving and feeling grateful and I think if I had to say that's one theme that that is throughout my whole experience writing Tasting Grace, it would be putting us in a in a posture of receiving and gratitude and connecting.
0: Hmm. Which sounds beautiful and and simple in some ways. And yet I know that we all have such a complicated and distorted relationship with food because of what you've just described it's a slippery slope and I wonder if if much of your journey in the food space comes from your own story and how have you untangled some of your own story of um, of your relationship with food what I mean what did you experience as you know, as a child growing up and what were your early years when you were a chef like and how have you had to untangle some of that?
1: Well, by starting this deep dive into, God, what are you saying about food and how does that change me? I think I sort of expected it to be a story of, oh, how is that going to change how I look at food going forward? What was unexpected for me was that it had me rethinking my food stories of my past. And, um, and my hope is that it, that, that, that these, uh, the topics in discussion in and tasting grace will have other people also rethinking sort of their stories of food in the past and sort of put a new framework, um, around, um, around those stories. Um, but that's, that's how I chose to then sort of talk about these uh, these 16 invitations that I sort of identified that God is issuing to us um, through food. I decided to reframe those and sort of share those stories through um, through my personal food stories um, because I think it sort of helps give an example if you uh-huh. will. Um, and I think it more importantly invites the reader, to go back and think about their stories. So I, um, I opened the book with a story of me in a school, uh, the school, um, cafeteria and how I realized that I was poor in the school cafeteria. I didn't realize I was poor until I got there and how the school cafeteria uh, really reflected a, um, and like physically, like where you sat in the school cafeteria, um, reflected a, um, a social hierarchy that probably you are unaware of, um, unless you were at the bottom of it. Um, but, um, talking about how food was part of that story, um, of dividing and making those hierarchical divisions clear to me, even as a nine-year-old, um, is where I kind of begin um, kind of begin that story um, what I got out of that experience was a real sense of um, how Jesus used food to unite people um, and we talk as Christians um, you know we talk about you know feeding the poor and the importance of that and that is important um, but what what I realized in looking back at that experience where I um, I met, people who were the hands and feet of Jesus to me as a child and um and as part of that story I talk about how I was put on a school lunch program um which speaks to the the beauty of um of the Christian feeding the poor but more than that I I talk about how there was one girl Katie Rudder who Fed me, who um, gave me, who shared her Fritos corn chips every day, and what she didn't realize was that she was giving me part of my food. I, I was actually counting on her corn chips to help fill my empty stomach. But the beauty about Katie Rudder and her corn chips was that she didn't just hand me corn chips and fill my stomach she filled my soul by giving me a place to sit at the table because Katie and I didn't just share corn chips we shared our lives we shared a place at the table and isn't that what Jesus did he didn't just feed people in these beautiful wonderful miracles he ate with people and invited them in and shared their lives and so so i begin the stories of of, of how I intersect with, well, what is God saying about food? Um, with this invitation to not only feed each other and, and to use food to unite us, but to share lives with one another. And so that's, that's sort of how I, how I approach these invitations because I couldn't, I couldn't think about these invitations without suddenly thinking, oh, that's what was going on. God used food in my life um, specifically, but I think in a lot of people's lives, God is using food to draw us into Him in different ways and in different invitations. And so, all these sort of uh, um, maybe we would even call them flaws of the food system, um, or what we might perceive as flaws. You know that food, you know, requires patience. We have to. Grow food, we have to prepare food, we have to set the table, we have to pause and sit down. And you know, that's sort of a quote unquote hassle. But maybe all of these, um, these characteristics of the food system, maybe they're not little flaws, maybe they are features, maybe they are invitations, invitations into the worthy work of food or invitations into the patience that food requires. Um, maybe. All of these characteristics of the food system are really invitations and beautiful opportunities for us to live a more joyful life, but one that's more connected. Um, more importantly, one that is connected to our maker and to each other and to our earth. And, um, so each chapter is sort of led by a different sort of story or context. So my hope is that, um, someone reading Tasting Grace Um, that if they don't even want to read all the chapters in a row, they can pull the chapters, read the one about me being, um, you know, a new mom with my kids and feeding them. Or, you know, I talk about the, the chapter about losing my mom and coming out of of grief and how food played a role in gently luring me out of, um, that that grief stricken spiritual winter or, you know, the sitting as a child in the, in the classroom and having a stomach that grumbles and what does that mean? And what's that experience? So my hope is that the stories, you know, I've got a, a chapter on living in France and leaning into what that, how did that um, invite me into closeness to God and, um, and living in Paris and what Paris ingredients and what that is like. I have a chapter about, um, being like kind of the behind the scenes of what it was like to be on Next Food Network star. So you know, there's sort of some fun chapters. There's some more touching chapters, um, but they all speak to a different invitation that God is issuing to us through food.
0: Mm-hmm. What I hear is that you've developed a theology of food, uh, a coming to understand more of God through this idea of food, and it's it just sounds. Amazing. Melissa, tell me a little bit. you've kind of popped in there a little bit with your kids and talking about um, feeding them and their perception of food. And now they're teenagers, mm-hmm. mostly. You've got fourteen girls. Mm-hmm. and for for those of my listeners who are also raising teenagers, uh, particularly teenage girls or you know early adolescent girls, we all know that food, and our relationship to food, their relationship to food is a huge topic of conversation, or it's there, it's present, whether we're, we're talking about it or not. How have you engaged your girls around food? Like, What have some of the conversations been like with them, especially as you've gone through this journey yourself?
1: Funnily enough, I don't know if any other mom has this experience, but I find that becoming a mom has sort of Encouraged me to um, reckon with my, um, um, you know, with my attitudes about a lot of things—not just food, but about, you know, body image and um, and and food. All these things that I think, oh, I don't know if I want my kids to take on the attitudes that, if I'm honest, I have about myself. And so interestingly enough, what that says to me is that um, as a mom, I had to face the reality that I had higher standards for my kids than I did for my own self. So that's its own reckoning of, listen, if I wouldn't want my kids to say this about their bodies, um, why am I okay with me saying that to myself about my body and body image, and um, and so um, I I don't know that it was this clear cut, but I almost wonder if my kids, kind of coming into their uh, preteen years, didn't play a part in me sort of saying, "Hmm, I need to reconcile this for myself," because um, my kids will take on my attitudes. Whether I think I'm sort of "quote unquote" hiding it from them or not, and I think I, I think that part of my discomfort with this um, these mixed messages and how I was in, internalizing them and what that meant for what I was saying to myself about food and body image and being a woman and and society, I actually think that m- that my kids going into the preteen years probably. Gently nudged me toward this, um, this exercise of, of writing Tasting Grace. So, um, so I will say it's, it's messy and hard, um, and imperfect because that's what parenting is. But I think that, um, in some ways, Tasting Grace might be the book of how I want to talk to my kids about food, um, you know, written in a way that's not, uh, that's not that, right? So, <laughs> right. Uh, but I think, I, I, I actually think that that deeply was probably what, uh, what led me to sort of say, hmm, I don't, I don't like what I'm saying to myself about food and I don't want my kids To take that on. Um, I, and I'll give you a very small, it's going to sound like a really innocuous, silly example, but even like on $10 dinners, you know, when I would, um, I would say, and people do this all the time that, you know, oh, this, you know, this dish is so easy, but it's company worthy. It's going to look like something that you got at a restaurant and, you know, and it will impress your friends with this simple dish. And yet it doesn't take a lot of time or whatever, you know, lots of that language right there. Um, it started to bother me because uh like let's just even take the word impress. Um impress is really the language of separation. Now, not a lot. We're talking about a chicken recipe, right? That's not that's not a big that's not a big separation, but when I'm inviting people into my home and hoping that they are impressed by my cooking ability or dazzled or whatever, um it is a little bit saying I want to be put on a little bit of a pedestal. Like it's small, it's not big, and it's so small that it's easy to ignore that language and ignore um, things like you know restaurant worthy. You know that's really saying that the restaurant chef is our is our. Um, is the the litmus by which we will judge our Tuesday night meals. Um, And again, that doesn't sound all that bad. And maybe it sounds aspirational, like, oh, that's great. I want to work hard and I want to make people feel welcome when they come into our home. And that is true and that is good. Again, slippery slope. We want to make people feel welcome when they come into our home and we want them to know that they were worth our worthy work of, of, of creating something for them. That is good. But the slippery slope is we very quickly go from that, the worthy work of food and welcoming the stranger into the language of impressing and separation. And even though it's a small separation, directionally, it's separation. And directionally in the Bible, when I see Jesus in food and God in food and when God, you know, giving manna to the Israelites, when I see food in the Bible, I see directionally drawing in. So these are really perhaps small examples, and maybe, you know, it's easy to say, well, that doesn't really matter. Does it really matter if we're impressing? I, I believe it does. And, and I believe that when I teach my kids about impressing, or if I teach my kids that we need to work off our calories in the gym, um, I believe directionally I'm sharing something that is 180 degrees away from what God intends with food. And so the, the small lies lead to big shifts in our attitudes toward food and toward our bodies. So with my kids, I'm Really careful about my language, um, because and it's not just for them. Because right, I I want to have the same standards for me as I do for my kids. So it was it was having kids, quite honestly, and daughters in particular, because the mixed messages for 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 women are are even a step function higher and more confusing than the messages that are out there for men. Uh, but really, for all of us, right, for society, I. I am worth in in my maker's eyes, I am worth as much as my daughters are. And I am worth in my maker's eyes even, even more than my daughters are to me. Like God loves us more than I could possibly even imagine um, in loving my own daughters. As much as that's crazy and hard to even fathom, that's just the truth. So having teenagers is perhaps even what led me to writing Tasting Grace. And so when when I've come out of the other side of writing Tasting Grace, that that changes the language that I use with my kids.
0: Oh my goodness, Melissa, you have such wisdom. So many incredible, just self-reflective thoughts on just the, the industry that you were immersed in and just what you were beginning to think about and how you just allowed God to begin to speak to you differently and to parse out those fine little differences in what we're saying and and believing and how it does create this completely opposite directional shift. So much wisdom there, so much to think about. Oh my goodness, I could go on and on listening to you. I cannot wait to to pick up that book and start sharing it um, with people because I just think this is an incredible and it feels fresh and just this theology of food that you may or may not even use that phrase in your book. But that's what I keep telling my hearing in my own head, that that's what you're developing here. So thank you so much for for writing that. And thank you for coming on the podcast today to share just a little sneak peek of it for us.
1: Well, thank you, Beth, for having me. And thank you for the work you do. You are, I just, I, I could, I could spend hours on your, in your resource library. Just, I I would just be a better person if I just spent my days on your resource library. So I love the work you're doing. And so I'm thrilled to even be a, a small part of, of your conversation. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Melissa. Well, I don't know about you listeners, but I relate to so much of what Melissa had to share with us and what she writes about in her book. And I think about this week, if you're listening to this on the day that this podcast comes out, um, right before Thanksgiving, so many of us are, are going into this week with stories around food. Um, we have narratives around how we... Uh, view food and our relationship with food that have shaped us and and we carry that into this weekend and so i just love being able to focus a little bit on the sacred of food and where God is in that and what he has for us um, this weekend in particular. And I want to encourage you, I'm going to put this link in the show notes, but uh, one of our therapists at Restoration Counseling Center wrote a little bit about how our story of food oftentimes is triggered during holidays and maybe some questions to consider just to take care of ourselves in that space. And so, um, again, the link will be in the show notes, but it's on our Restoration counseling, uh, NoCo.com blog section around holiday triggers if if you want to read more and I encourage you to pick up Melissa's book if this was encouraging and inspiring and intriguing to you again her book will be in the show notes um, just such a relatable uh, concept that so many of us are are inundated with all the time around issues of food and and how we are viewing that and so is so thankful for her voice today for us. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful holiday. I hope you're able to celebrate well in whatever way that looks for you. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast.